Welcome to localjobnetwork.com radio. Your attention is directed to Minding Your P's and Q's, where we examine the sometimes treacherous aspects of business and employment etiquette from a variety of angles. I'm your host, Tim Muma. When we talk about behavior in relation to etiquette, it's often regarded in terms of something like politeness or processes, but today we're looking a touch deeper. The issue of gender bias, either in hiring or promotions, is a topic that needs some in-depth examination, whether it's impacted by conscious or subconscious factors. Joining us from Massachusetts to discuss one major way gender bias could be limited is Victoria Budson, the Executive Director of the Women in Public Policy Program at Harvard University. Thanks for coming on today, Victoria. My pleasure, Tim. First of all, if you could describe a little bit about the purpose and the role of the the Women in Public Policy Program over there at the Harvard Kennedy School. Sure. The Women in Public Policy Program was created to close gender gaps for women and girls and to focus on the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, education, and health. And our focus isn't just about rights, but really about returns. And our work looks within individual countries and then comparative data between, but to understand how you can move the benchmark and move the needle to really close gaps for women and girls, not just to help women and girls, but to make companies and corporations more successful, to make governments and their policies more accurate, of meeting the goals that have been designed and really to enhance the civil society sector as well. The idea is that by fully utilizing 51% of our population to their fullest extent and by helping women really ascend and achieve in all the ways that they can, we'll have much stronger societies. So with that, then, do you have certain activities or events? And I mean, obviously you're doing research, but what what kind of things do you do maybe to, to bring people together and get this information out there? Sure. We do the traditional uh, aspects, which you touched upon, that we have faculty from throughout this university here at Harvard and others that work on finding replicable interventions mm-hmm. and intervention, meaning a set of actions that an organization or individual can take to close gaps. And we look for replicable interventions. And the types of interventions we focus on are randomized controlled trials in terms of our process for how we identify and study, Mm -hmm. much like drug testing. So instead of having just a best practice where somebody does something, they think it was effective, they tell other people and it's repeated, we really narrow in on how can we measure effectively what change takes place, why it took place, and how it could be used in other settings. In addition, we host many conferences and events and function in a convening role and bring people together from all of the sectors to understand and think about how to most effectively utilize this research and to identify what are the key real-world questions that need to be researched next. So with the program itself then, were there certain reasons that it it really did get started? Was there something that sparked it? I guess, how did it really start to come to fruition, so to speak? What a great question. And I've been here at the Center for over 16 years, and I'm one of the original founders. And one of the the things when one looks at an institution like Harvard, Harvard has been here since the 1630s. It predates the creation of the United States. Hmm. Harvard has been a major definer of what we consider fact, of what we know about our world. And to have an institution that is as trend-setting and benchmark-setting as Harvard University and not to have an exploration of how we can more effectively answer questions and understand our world when it comes to the majority of the population seemed like a real miss. Hmm. 
and was founded here at the Kennedy School to work particularly on issues having to do with government and then expanded over time to cover all the sectors to figure out how we can fundamentally increase outcomes for everyone through better interventions and outcomes for women and girls. So as we look then to sort of the topic at hand and the issue of gender bias, when we're talking about hiring or promotions, that sort of thing, what would you describe as the the biggest concerns and challenges when we talk about that gender gap or bias that is definitely prevalent in, in the workplace? Well, what's really interesting is sometimes people think about gender bias in the workplace or anywhere else as a bad thing which men do or men do to women. <laughs> and really, that's not what the situation is at all. Sure. What the situation is, and our research shows over and over, that whether the hiring officer is a man or a woman, the bias is exactly the same. Hmm, that's interesting. Isn't it? What we're really looking at is people have what's called implicit bias. An implicit bias really focuses on what are the norms that we hold, the stereotypes that we hold in our minds, that even when we're trying to be fair and equal, still play with our decision making. And what we need to do as individuals is understand how the mind works so that we can make processes which reduce our dependence on stereotypes so we get better outcomes. So again, note, if this is if you are a listener and you're a woman and you're a listener and you're a man, both of you need to understand how this works, whether you're looking to be hired into a job or whether you're the person making the decision on who will be hired. It's equally relevant for you. Sure. We've got a great study that came out that Iris Bennett, Alexandra Van Geen, and Max Bazerman did. And the study really looked at when performance trumps gender bias, joint versus separate evaluation. And what they discovered is if you're evaluating candidates one at a time for promotion or for hire, if the candidate that you're looking at fits the stereotype, i.e. if you are going to be hiring someone to be a mathematician, and if in your culture people believe that men are better at math, mm-hmm. looking at a man for the job and a woman for the job And your process is independent. You just look at the person's CV and interview them and it's only a man and you don't have any comparative data. That man will fit your normscape for what you anticipate you should be looking for in your hire. And the woman does not. And when one is looking one at a time, like we usually do for promotions, as opposed to when an accounting firm is going to hire or consulting firm is going to hire 20 people at once, Mm -hmm. is going to be comparing each person to each other person. When we do it one at a time, we rely on our stereotypes. But when we're looking at even just two candidates, we then focus in on the skill set and the experience and our reliance on our stereotyping recedes. And it's a big finding that just having two people in your pool reduces and eliminates the bias. Normally, it would just impact it a little, but it wouldn't make it go away. Mm. This This is a strong finding. Now, why would your listeners be so interested in this? And the reason that this is so constructive and useful is that once you know that with a very small tweak in your hiring process, just having multiple candidates being assessed, you can end up getting people who are going to be more effective at the job. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. And you, you mentioned the research was really, was really the way I sort of came across everything that you're doing in the program um, and the idea of, of this when performance trumps gender bias you mentioned how when individually someone is being evaluated, these you know stereotypes that 
individually we have or as a group we have sort of come about and they, they turn our decision making or they, they affect it you know, in a big way. Are there any theories behind why that is exactly, why we struggle with that as, as humans, why, why those stereotypes become prevalent instead of being able to objectively or fairly, as you put it, come up with who's the better candidate? Why does that happen exactly? You know, that's a great question. And one of the ways that um, I often describe it for audiences is even good, well-meaning people. You know, that this isn't a how good you are question. Good, well-meaning people, all of us, who would wish to make the right choices Our minds are designed to be able to process a lot of information and to then use that past information to make effective choices now. Right. Stereotyping is a form of shortcutting. And one of the problems is cultural biases create inaccurate stereotypes, right? Mm. You can have expectations from experiences you've had that are totally on target. If you go to the car wash, your car is likely to be cleaner at the end than the beginning. Real world experience that seeks out to be true. If we live in a culture where all the media around us reflects certain images of what a CEO would look like or what the president would look like or who would be good at math or who would be good at science, we're taking in a lot of information, but that information doesn't necessarily give us a full and accurate picture. And when our mind shortcuts to it, which it does to organize large amounts of information, it doesn't give us everything that we would need to make the best decisions. So on the flip side, then, when when the men and the women, you know, when it was the idea of them being evaluated together, I guess I'm still trying to figure out why then does the performance, you know, their past performance take precedent? I mean, the stereotypes are still in, in your mind there. And when you're individually evaluating, you can still look at what their past performance is. I mean, is there... Is there something sure. tangible to, to look at or, or why our, our brains might work in that way? And just based on, you know, the research and your experience, that sort of thing. And I'll also note, for example, if one was likely to be hiring for a position in nursing, mm-hmm. women would would be the normative example. Okay. So women would be more likely to be hired for that if there isn't joint evaluation. Sure. So what happens is when you have two candidates and you're reviewing both of them, the mind begins to focus on comparing between the candidates. So the key is between the candidates rather than between an idealized norm and the candidate. Okay. Now, you might say, well, you know what? In my company, we just don't have the opportunity for that. One of the ways that one of the researchers suggested you might be able to still help your process improve is to look at what do the CVs look like for individuals um, in similar positions at other firms or Can you look at promotions that have happened from the past, but something that can click your mind into really focusing on the actual data in front of you and not comparing it to an idealized norm? Another interesting aspect of the study, I mean, it obviously relates, and it's sort of along the lines of decision-making and the idea that when individuals were evaluated individually, that it was really a poor hiring process, and the people they brought on in this study ended up being poorer selections, regardless of of gender or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Is there a a particular reason? I mean, does that sort of just show that the stereotypes on their own are false and that you can't rely on that? I mean, what, why was there that disparity when they were evaluated individually, the hires were considered poorer than if they were evaluated as a group? Well, I think what, you know, what our perspective is, is when you're evaluating with more than one, you really look at each piece of the performance. And it is interesting that one couldn't do that without that. Like, why shouldn't the mind know to do that anyway? Right, right. 
And certainly anyone who's read this study, when you go and you have to make an individual hire, you're likely to be thinking about it. And hopefully that will help as well <laughs> if, if you can't do the full intervention. But it's that we all go back to these implicit biases. And one of our professors, Professor Banaji, her she has this great test that one can find on her website where you can go through and take an online test that will help you self-assess what your biases are. And everyone sits down and thinks, I'm not biased and nothing's going to come up. But <laughs> inevitably, what we find is we're all biased because we're all products of our culture. Right. And it's being able to begin to tease that out and understand it that can make us more effective. And I can share with you another piece of research, which we've done here at the center that Hannah Riley Bowles did. She and Linda Babcock did this wonderful work. Many of your listeners will be familiar with the work that Babcock and Riley Bowles did focusing on women don't ask. And this notion that women ask for promotion and ask for a change in compensation much less frequently than their male counterparts. And after their first study, Hannah Riley Bowles looked at this and thought, you know what? I bet if women aren't asking, there's a reason and did a second set of research, which showed that women often didn't ask because they properly identified social backlash. Hmm. And that they understood by reading their environment well that they would be in a situation where they would have some consequences for that ask. And what Hannah discovered was that when women were negotiating in an initial job offer, the hiring officer, whether a woman or a man, it was the same for both, were a little less likely to want to work with her. Whereas the man, when he negotiated in the initial job offer, it made no difference in terms of how much people wanted to work with them. They lost no social capital through the process of asking for a higher level of compensation. And the reason that it's um, I'm raising it as we talk about the other study is both of them are about what is the expected norm of how people will behave. Mm -hmm. When a man asked for more money, it didn't break the expectations around what it means to be a good man in this situation. When women asked, it went against the normative expectation. Now, Hannah came up with a great intervention, which is if when a woman is asking for a raise or additional compensation in a bargaining position, she says something that signals her relational interest. If she says, you know, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to work together. I think this is such a strong company and I value being here. She has met the normative expectation of the hiring officer that she's still relational and functions as we kind of expect women will. Sure. And what that did was they were then able to ask for the raise without also incurring some type of social backlash. Now, do note, we're not saying women should need to do this. That's <laughs> what the research shows. We should live in a world where this is not necessary. Right. But again, it's understanding and contextualizing how the culture of your workplace, how the culture of whatever nation um, your organization is in, or how the different units operate differently when you're in a company that operates in many different nations or regions, how the cultural interplay impacts your business model. And the more you understand it, the better you can retain and promote your most able workforce and how you can better recruit. And I think you touched on an important part there is that none of any of the studies or anything we talk about, it's not that we're saying it's acceptable or that it's you know right or appropriate. It's just the idea of having an understanding of how things are working and how you know you can 
help yourself if you're if you're you know looking for a job or even help your organization if you're an employer. So I, I think that is an important part that you touched on there. All right, so Victoria, obviously we've been talking about a lot of different aspects here with the idea of gender bias and, and sort of the you know the things that, that go into it um, on, on either side really. But when we talk about the concerns or challenges in relation to this this gender gap or gender bias, are there certain numbers or stats that sort of illustrate this issue or, or areas that maybe your group points to, to to just sort of give people an idea of what this really means and, and where we're at with this idea? Absolutely. In particular, when we look at gaps, for women and men in business, what we see is that for Fortune 500 CEOs, only 4% are women. When we look broadly across the C-suite, the numbers are just a bit better. And when we look at boards of Fortune 500s, we see that most have one or two women, and that's it. What we're really seeing is a very large gap between the educational attainment, the skill level, and the talent, then from the position. So that Hmm. it's not an issue of there aren't enough women in the pipeline. The issue is that women aren't getting promoted, matching their skill set and accomplishment. And though often one will think about, well, the individual woman loses out by not having that opportunity, we really focus on how the whole company loses out by not maximizing the input of that person's talent. And how can companies effectively manage their talent such that they are fully utilizing and actualizing that capacity? In many ways, it would be almost akin to having an extraordinarily strong, capable engine, but never understanding how to fully inject the fuel to have it run effectively. And Hmm. what we try to do is to help companies and corporations, as well as those in government and education and in the health sectors, close those gaps. We strongly believe that it isn't that people don't want to close those gaps, but they think of it as too big a problem to solve, and they don't have the skills and techniques to do it. So, I mean, is that really the, the biggest concern is more so in the promotion area to these, you know, upper level type positions? And, and, and I guess you touched on a little bit there, but is, is that where you lean more towards the issue as opposed to just straight hiring? Or is there still a, a concern with that in terms of, you know, females to males? Well, you know, it's a pretty pervasive issue, but the issue accelerates and it's most visible at the top. Okay. We find that when groups and organizations are making hires and it's at an entry level, there's usually many people hired at once. Mm -hmm. And when people are hiring in batches, people do a better job of recognizing, the hiring officers do a better job of recognizing that they will need a diverse set of talents and skills, both within different fields and within different backgrounds of the individuals. But it's when one is seeking an individual who's at an upper level or is looking at promotions that people tend to be looking at one person at a time. Okay. And whenever people are looking at one person at a time instead of in batches or looking at one person without comparative data, the stereotype, the idealized image of who is the ideal person really looms large in the decision maker's mind and can sometimes obfuscate a focus in on the attributes that are needed or the individual's performance. So with your experience, and obviously, uh, you know, you, I'm sure you talk to a lot of people in different industries and, and different things you've probably researched on your own. Is there being progress made in terms of this gap or this bias? Has it been really slow? Has it increased over the, in the last few years? I mean, how would you sort of gauge the progress, if any? I would say that the progress has been slow, but it is being made. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's been terrific is that people are identifying that 
this really is about how can they make their team or organization more effective so that whereas in the past people might have bristled at needing to hear information about why and how they should change, people are now leaning forward seeking solutions so that they can more effectively manage their business. Mm -hmm. People now see it not at all as a chastisement or as a initiative that's being brought in that they don't have an investment in and instead look at this as one more arrow in their quiver of how they can effectively compete in the marketplace of today. So though the actual outcomes have been slow, I think we've seen a pretty significant shift in the thinking around it. And I think that augurs well for the future. You know, we do hear that a lot. I'm just the guests we've had in and, and our discussions with on our own team, the idea that employers, you hear all the time that employers want to hire more women and they want to have more diversity in, in that respect when it comes to boards and, and advisory positions. So you hear, you do hear that a lot. You know, some people you would argue are, are saying it to, to sound, you know, proper and politically correct. Some really want that. So despite all that hearing, we still talk about maybe a slow progress here. What are some ways that employers can overcome this issue, maybe overcome their own stereotypes? I know we talk a lot about, you know, the, the, the crux of this being evaluating in, in a group as opposed to individually. Are there any other little suggestions or tips you can offer to an employer to really sort of get past this mental block in a way? Sure. That's a great question. The first is to begin by understanding where your company is and to do an assessment in your unit or department. How are you faring when you look at your promotions? What if you break down your promotion rate and look at it by gender? What if you look at it by age? What if you look at it by race? What if you look at it by years of experience? What if you look at it by how technical the position is and begin to understand what the patterns are within your organization? Two, how can you educate your workforce to more effectively think about their career path so that instead of all the burden being on the manager, that's a shared responsibility with each employee as they're thinking about how they can best contribute to the company so that you share the whole conversation. So again, it's not one more thing put on each manager's plate, but it becomes mm. a company-wide discussion, department-wide discussion, and some of the responsibility resides within the individuals as well. Three, it's having transparent information. Most employees greatly want to succeed, want to move up the ladder, want to perform well, and want to improve performance. So whenever you have transparent systems so people are aware of what skills they need, what experience they need, what outcomes they need, and what achievements they need. Employees do a much uh, more effective job of being ready for the next promotion and meeting the next need of the company. So having a transparent system with clearly defined benchmarks can be an incredible benefit to everyone. It makes it much easier to um, assess and understand the data. And then lastly, I'd say remembering that in almost every field, it's no longer a pipeline issue, mm -hmm. except for very few remaining sort of hold, holdouts in science, technology, engineering, or math. And again, very, very few fields and highly technicalized. Women are more educated than their male counterparts. So if you yourself or someone in your team wants to say, I cannot find a competent woman for this role, or this is a pipeline issue, with very few exceptions, it isn't. So one needs to examine what is the issue? Is it how we're recruiting? Is it how we're retaining employees? Is it how we're promoting employees? There's a really terrific piece of work that was done by Kathleen McGinn, which focused on 
even if a company has very good systems in place, if someone looks above them in the hierarchy and doesn't see anyone that looks like them by race, by age, or by gender, they're not likely to stay, even if your company is doing everything right. Seeing is often believing. If people can't see anyone that looks like them, they often think this place probably isn't the best place for me. Sure. So people have to walk the walk in addition to talking the talk. Well, that'll just about do it for us here on Mining Your P's and Q's and our discussion on gender bias, but more importantly, when performance can trump that bias, which is really normally a mental block, not a conscious decision by people in charge or making those decisions to hand out promotions. Our expert guest on the subject has been Victoria Budson, Executive Director of the Women in Public Policy Program at Harvard University. Of course, we appreciate it and we're very thankful for her insight, uh, particularly into the research that their program has done. If you want to find out more information about their research and and other perspectives that they bring to you, uh, the easiest way really is to go to an internet search engine and just type in Harvard Kennedy School Women and Public Policy Program. That'll bring up their site and you'll be able to click around and find plenty of information there. You could also go to localjobnetwork.com radio and find the episode page for this show and also have a link to that website. Of course, we're always interested in hearing from you, the listener, as well. So please drop us an email at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com if you have any comments or suggestions for this show or any of the programs on localjobnetwork.com radio. Until we talk again next time, I'm your host, Tim Muma. <laughs>